This podcast was recorded in the autumn of 2023, live in a classroom at Yale University. Class 8, Leninism, the rushing of history. Today is the day we go into the Bolshevik Revolution. We'll keep going over this time period in various lectures, because I'm going to be taking you through the First World War and the Bolshevik Revolution today. And we're always going to be starting back a little bit beforehand and try to explain what's kind of going on as we lead up. But I want to start with, I'm going to start with the theory. And we're not going to actually get to the revolution for another 35 minutes or so. Um, and I want you all to think again about time. We're going to go back to temporality. We talked about Bergson. We talked about Nietzsche. We talked about Marx's idea of time, Hegel's idea of time. Time keeps coming back. And temporality keeps coming back. The, this concepts of time, the experience of time. Does time flounder around? Does it have a certain direction? Is it punctuated? Does it have duration? Is it continuous or is it discrete? Does it necessarily move forwards in a normative direction, you know, as well as simply a calculated mathematical direction? Today we're going to think about time, and this, we're going to think not only about directionality, we're going to assume we are now in a framework of time with a very intense sense of directionality. We're in Marxist time. Marx is taking his time from Hegel. Time is moving in a certain direction, towards a certain telos. So we're taking it for granted that we're now in a kind of linear and a profoundly directional notion of time. And now we're going to add another element to how we think about time. And that element is speed. The question for today is going to be, can history be rushed? So we have the Hegelian notion of history, history with a capital H. History has its own dynamic, its own laws. It's not just floundering here or there. We know where it's going. Can we nudge it a little? Can we speed it up? Is there a way to make things go faster? Now, for Marx, of course, there was no possibility of going back. You don't go back in history, you only go forward. But he doesn't tell you exactly how long every stage takes. Right? History is progressing through stages. The communist utopia is going to come, but we don't know exactly when. And let me now take a kind of moment to, as a kind of footnote, to clarify some terms. Um, you're going to hear communism, socialism, social democracy, Leninism, Marxism-Leninism, Bolshevism, Menshevism, you know, and I realize these are very confusing because there are a lot of terms and different authors are gonna use them in a slightly different way. What makes them furthermore confusing is that they get used at different ways at different historical moments. Um, but let me, let me try to clarify as best I can for the purposes of this lecture. And if you're confused, don't feel badly because that's, 
totally natural given how these terms are used. Communism is coming from Marx's idea of this end goal of history where eventually the workers have become class conscious, they've risen up, they've violently overthrown the bourgeoisie, they've abolished private property. You know, eventually national borders wither away, everybody works according to their ability and receives according to their need. There is no more private property. We are then living in communism. That's like, that's the telos. All class antagonism has been aufgehoben in Hegelian terms. You know, it's all been overcome, it's all been sublated. That's the end goal. Marxism, of course, refers to Marx's theory you know, of all of this. Now we have socialism, which is going to be used through a whole spectrum of anything from some elements of redistribution that are not based purely on private property to basically synonymous with communism. For our purposes, we're going to look at socialism as a not quite as extreme or consummated form of communism, where not everything is completely you know, owned collectively yet. Social democracy, as we use it today, tends to refer to places like Sweden, where you have a mixed economy, there's a lot more intervention of the state, the state's guaranteeing healthcare, the state's guaranteeing maternity leave, but there are still elements of private enterprise, of private property. Um, but there's a big safety net. Social democracy, this is not to be confused with social democracy as Lenin and Luxembourg are going to use it you know, back at the time we're talking about around the turn of the century in which they're using it effectively as synonymous with communism. You know, and so social democracy is going to be the name of also these communist parties. Um, but they don't have Sweden in mind. <laughs> there, when Lenin says social democracy, when Luxembourg says social democracy, they're not thinking about Norway. They're not thinking about Vienna. They, they're thinking much more about what we would think of as communism. Um, but now the most important distinction for our purposes is we're going to move from Marxism to Leninism, which is sometimes called Marxism-Leninism. And then we really do have a clear distinction. Because Lenin is coming in and he is going to modify Marxism in a very specific way. And that is not just a kind of, well, you can use it this way, you can use it that way. Like this, I'm hoping by the end of today's lecture, you'll really have a clear sense you know, of what he does in his revision of Marxism. He does lots of things. We're going to talk about the most important one today. Um, Bolshevism and Menshevism are then going to be the names of the two different wings or branches of what had been a communist party you know, in the Tsarist Empire that's going to break up in 1903 as a result of Lenin's intervention. So just bracket that, we'll get to that in about five minutes. Okay. Um, now with that, let me kind of go back, let me go back to very briefly to the French Revolution. The whole 19th century takes place in the shadow of the French Revolution. The whole 20th century is going to take place in the shadow of the Bolshevik Revolution. In many ways, we are still coming to terms with what it means to be in the shadow of that Bolshevik revolution. Everything that happens in the history of 20th century European thought is in some way going to be a response to this radical experiment 
that takes place in the Soviet Union, um, in what had been the Russian Empire and what is going to become the Soviet Union. The Bolshevik Revolution is arguably the seminal event of the 20th century. Again, this doesn't mean it was a happy thing or a good thing, but in terms of the dramatic impact that it makes. And the question I want you to understand by the time we finish today's lecture is how do we move from Marxism, the kind of Marxism you read in the Communist Manifesto, to the Bolshevik Revolution, to the creation of the Soviet Union? Huh. And so remember, we have a combination of things that are an influence on Marx. We have all these ideas from the Enlightenment and from the French Revolution, from the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen. Men are born free and equal. Sovereignty resides in the people. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty. These notions of liberation, ideas of liberation, what human liberation would mean, which were profoundly influential on Marx. Um, we also have 19th century industrialization following on the heels of the French Revolution, which are those concrete, material, technological, and technical changes as a result of which we have peasants moving from the countryside into cities, we have urbanization, we have peasants becoming factory workers, we have the creation of factories, we have a shift from a barter economy where you're exchanging things to a cash economy that allows for the factory owners to accumulate capital. We have all of these things that are going on at the same time. Now Marx and Engels are hanging out in that part of Europe and really in that part of the world where enlightenment you know, had its strongest form and where industrialization is proceeding particularly quickly. That is not representative of all of Europe and it's not representative, even less so is it representative of the rest of the world. But remember the little joke about you know, all of you know, civilized world opinion and it turns out to be six people in a cafe in Paris. There's like some of that going on. Like you kind of, you're generalizing from your own experience. So from Marx and Engels' point of view, they're hanging out you know, in, in Germany, France, and England. It looks like these stages of history are just zooming on. Now I'm gonna take you, Lenin is going to come to all this philosophy, he's gonna be reading all these texts, very serious reader, and he's coming from a different part of Europe. Um, and really he's coming from Eurasia, if we you know, look at the whole extent of the Tsarist Empire. And the Tsarist Empire, the Russian Empire, as it existed in the late 19th century, is kind of a place where modernization is not happening. Or it's happening at a very, very slow, incipient pace. There's a very strong autocratic tradition. There's an entrenched hierarchy. You have a tsar, you have the nobility, you have the peasantry. The empire is essentially the personal property of the tsar. We're not in a kind of constitutional monarchy type of situation. We're in feudalism. Capitalism is not there yet. Industrialization is not there yet. The serfs are only emancipated in the Russian Empire in 1861. That is very late in European terms, although still earlier than slavery is abolished in the United States, I would add, just put this in perspective. And even when the serfs are emancipated, the conditions of their emancipation are such that their condition in practical terms doesn't change very much. Um, 
between 1867 um, and 1897, the population of St. Petersburg does double. Um, so people are moving into cities, but they don't have any kind of necessary infrastructure to carry that. You've got excessive crowding. You have epidemics of typhus, of cholera, of syphilis. Um, the working conditions in factories are grotesque. They're gruesome. They're harsh. Um, so the workers are being horrifically exploited, but there's only a handful of them to begin with. The vast majority of the country is peasantry. You have a revolutionary intelligentsia that has developed in the second half of the 19th century of people like Lenin who are reading Hegel, who are reading Marx, who are reading Voltaire for that matter, who have read through all this literature and have ideas about where history is going to go. Yeah. And so one of the things the revolutionary intelligentsia does is then they get together and they organize things called krushki from the word kruzhok. Um, Kruzhok is a Russian word, it just means circle, and it's kind of a reading circle or a study group. It's one of those words that often doesn't get translated, it's just Kruzhok. You know, and the idea is you're going to come and you're going to educate the workers. Um, now, we're talking about people who are living in horrific conditions, who are being terribly exploited, who are working 14, 15 hours a day, you know, who are not necessarily literate. And then you want to get them together after their working day and have them sit for a few hours and study Hegel. I mean, think how difficult it is for you to read Hegel and you have kind of ideal conditions like at Yale for reading Hegel. So imagine that you know, you're an illiterate factory worker in the Russian Empire. Like, this like educating the workers so that they become class conscious is, is, is not moving very quickly. Okay. Um, the short version of this story is that Lenin gets frustrated because it's going so slowly. Yeah. And remember, Marx's whole idea, and this is kind of the trick of the Communist Manifesto, it's obviously normative, that text. You know, obviously Marx thinks it's a, the Communist Revolution is a good thing. The workers of the world should unite. But it's also, it's not just a call for the workers to unite, it's also a prediction, it's a prophecy, it's a philosophy of history. That is what is going to happen. That's why Marx has disdain for all, like for Fourier and Saint-Simon and those guys. Because those guys are the utopian socialists, are the ones who say, wouldn't it be nice if? Wouldn't it be nice if we got together and took one another into consideration and distributed things more equally and took care not to exploit one another? Marx can't stand that. It's not, it, it's, for Marx, it's not wouldn't it be nice if. It's the science of the laws of history are inevitably, inexorably leading us to this place. It's not about volunteerism. He's not interested in volunteerism. This is history with a capital H. It has its own laws. Um, the idea for Marx is that the workers will naturally become class conscious. They will naturally become class consciousness because, as he and Engels writes, being precedes consciousness. You know, your consciousness is derivative of your objective position in the socioeconomic infrastructure. If you are a worker, you will come to workers' consciousness. Now, to come to workers' consciousness, it's not enough to say, like, you know, my life is miserable. 
you know, to come to workers' consciousness is to understand the whole, to understand that you can't fix one thing without fixing everything, that nothing can be done in a piecemeal fashion. To come to class consciousness is to understand Hegel, the true is the whole, to understand how all those pieces fit together. The problem is, Lenin looks around and says, you know, the workers just aren't getting there very fast. <laughs> you know, we're sitting there, we're reading Marx with them, and we're reading Engels, and we're reading Hegel, and like, they don't really understand dialectics. And they may perfectly well understand that their conditions are miserable. They might perfectly well understand that they want higher pay and they want shorter working hours and they want you know, lunch breaks or more sanitary conditions or any of those things they may understand. But they don't understand historical dialectics. They don't understand how all these pieces fit together. And that's frustrating for Lenin because Lenin is impatient. The key thing to understand about Lenin is that he's impatient. Yeah. He then looks around and says, okay, we've got to modify the doctrine. Because if we wait, it's just going to take too long. I mean, eventually, yes, yes, the workers will become class conscious. But not anytime soon, maybe not in my lifetime. He writes this text in 1902 called Sto It's one of these phrases you should learn in Russian because it's often not translated. When it is translated, it's what is to be done, what to do. It is arguably the most important text of the 20th century. Not because it's the best text, or the most brilliant text, or the most beautiful text, or anything like that. But in terms of turning history, you know, that, that text was like a nuclear bomb. And the key thing to understand about that text is that Lenin's impatient. What he lays out in this text is basically a method by which history with a capital H can be rushed. You're not changing the direction. You're just nudging it. Leninism is all about nudging it. And he says, okay, look, we see workers coming together in factories, realizing their conditions are miserable, and what do they do when they do have a strike? Like there was a big textile workers' strike um, in, in Petersburg at the end of the 19th century. Well, they, they ask for something small. They ask for something that's not the whole. You know, they ask for, for shorter hours or more vacation days or higher pay or a longer lunch break or something like that. They, 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 they ask for something that's small. They're not seeing the whole picture. They're not thinking about overthrowing the whole system. And Lenin will have a lot of words for what I'm here calling thinking small. He will sometimes talk about trade unionism, he'll talk about economism, he'll talk about spontaneity. When he talks about spontaneity, it's not exactly what, the way Kant uses it in terms of the theory of cognition, but it's if the workers spontaneously rise up, what they spontaneously ask for is, has not been critically reflected on, it's something immediate and material that they can use right now. 
trade unionism, okay, like they're getting together, they understand they need to act collectively in order to have influence over the employers. But that's, they're not thinking as revolutionaries. They're thinking as workers in a trade union. Economism is basically another word for thinking small, for asking for improvements in their condition, which are something less than a revolutionary overthrow of the whole system. So don't, don't get lost in, in Lenin's language that way. Okay. So Lenin is going to come up with the idea of how do you fix this problem that the workers are thinking small? Well, how you fix it is that you don't just wait. You don't just sit back and wait. Remember I said to you at the end of the Marxism lecture that classical Marxism begs the problem of Calvinism. So, you know, Calvinists believe that either you're predestined to go to heaven or you're not predestined to go to heaven. So if you believe that, why not just sit back? Right? Why do anything if it's all going to play itself out of its own accord and it's out of your hands? So classical Marxism begs that question. If it's all going to happen anyway, according to the iron laws of history, why do anything? You know. Lenin tells you why, and he gives the intellectuals a role. So the intellectuals have a problem. The Marxist intellectuals have a, because who's really studying Marx and Hegel? Those are the intellectuals, you know. And not only are they the intellectuals, but they're usually like the elite who have also learned French and German and perhaps English and have the leisure time to spend time trying to get through phenomenology of spirit, which as you've seen is not easy, um, you know. All, all the less so if, you know, you're a native Russian speaker and you're trying to get through it in German. It's not easy for native German speakers either. Um, and so these people who are actually getting it from Lenin's point of view are the intellectuals who probably have bourgeois background. They are not part of the class that is predestined to lead the revolution. They're not part of the proletariat. They're not workers. You know, they're already tainted. In fact, they're part of the bourgeoisie. That's why they have the resources to study Hegel. So you've got like, they've got a dilemma because they believe that the bourgeoisie has to be overthrown and the proletariat has to rise up and overthrow them, but they're actually part of the bourgeoisie. But they're, so they're kind of, what they want to do is kind of in a somewhat self-hating way, self-deprecating step back and let the proletariat lead them. But the proletariat is not catching on to their role because they don't properly understand their historical circumstances. Um, so Lenin's going to come up with a fix. And Lenin's fix is that what we need in the interim is we need a vanguard. Vanguard is a Lenin term. Um, we need a vanguard of professional revolutionaries, people who make revolutionary agitation their profession, people who devote themselves to this. They are going to take class consciousness, the proper understanding of history, they're going to take Marxist ideology and imagine you could like take consciousness and reify it. Imagine you could like take it and hold it in your hand as if it were a material thing. Could you take it like that and then kind of bring it to the workers like a gift? And thereby jumpstart this otherwise slow pace of history. Leninism is about an elite vanguard of professional revolutionaries, 
assuming that their origin is in the bourgeois intelligentsia, which makes them tainted, and of course they should hate themselves um, because they're not actually workers. And they are going to devote their lives to bringing class consciousness to the workers and jump-starting the revolutionary process. This organization, this vanguard of revolutionaries, is going to be the party, the Communist Party, which is going to have various names. Uh, when you see party with a capital P, it's a bit like history with a capital H. It's not just any political party. It is the party. You know, and to become a member under Lenin's idea of Marxism, of this party, is to devote your life to it, to be willing to die for it, to be willing to self-abnegate yourself for it, to prostrate yourself before it, to think of the party as a god, to be absolutely devoted, to be part of an elite vanguard, and to devote yourselves to secrecy and conspiracy because otherwise you're very quickly going to get sent to prison or sent to Siberia because obviously the authorities aren't going to be very happy that these revolutionaries are trying to foment revolution. So to be a communist, it's not like, to, you know, under Lenin, it's not like a kind of hippie, free love, kind of like leftist parking lot of a Grateful Dead concert kind of thing. Like, I mean, it's, it's to be absolute, it's to work 23 hours a day in conspiratorial conditions and to devote yourself life and death. You know, there's, there's a kind of mood about it. Huh. I mean, Lenin's idea is that this is the only way you're going to get class consciousness anytime soon. You've got to push the workers from without. Class consciousness has to be brought to them from without. Otherwise, it's just going to take too long. Okay, I've been talking too much, so let me read you a couple quotes by Lenin. Um, Lenin says, we have said that there could not have been social democratic consciousness among the workers, by which he means real Marxist communist consciousness from the workers. It would have to be brought to them from without, Lenin says. The history of all countries shows that the working class, exclusively by its own effort, is able to develop only trade union consciousness, i.e. the conviction that it's necessary to combine in unions, fight the employers, strive to compel the government to pass necessary labor legislation, etc. The organization, the work, so it, fine and well for the workers to have their, their trade unions, better than nothing. But you also need an organization of professional revolutionaries, and Lenin says this organization of revolutionaries must consist first and foremost of people who make revolutionary activity their profession. You know, this is going to be their life. And the intensity of the devotion is kind of necessary to understand the whole project. Um, that was 1902. That's what Lenin lays out in Shtodiela, what is to be done. In 1903, the second Congress of the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party takes place, which is basically the Communist Party and the Tsarist Empire, and the party splits. The split in the party in 1903 in the Tsarist Empire is crucial. It splits into the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. Um, those terms, Bolshevism and Menshevism, just come from the Russian words for minority and majority. 
the majority goes with Lenin's modification and agrees on the need to rush history. The minority goes, the minority called the Mensheviks takes a more conservative Marxist line and says you have to wait for history to play itself out. History will do its job. You have to trust it. Okay, the big question here is can history be rushed? I want to now mention at least briefly kind of who are in the... The intellectuals who I think are arguably Lenin's most important interlocutors and debate partners on this question, and that's Rosa Luxemburg and Georg Lukács. Um, Rosa Luxemburg is a fascinating, fascinating character um, in all sorts of ways. Um, she comes from a, a Polish-Jewish family in a town of Zamost, which at that time was in what, what today is in Poland. It was in the Tsarist Empire at the time. Um, she's already involved as a teenager in revolutionary activity. When she's 18, she runs off to Zurich to escape imprisonment for revolutionary activity. She is a founder of the Social Democratic Party of Poland and Lithuania. Um, she's later going to leave Zurich for Berlin and um, become one of the leaders of communist movements there, the German Social Democratic Labor Party. She's an uncompromising radical. She's insanely brave. Um, she's absolutely devoted uh, her whole life, and she's incredibly smart and multilingual. Um, she sees very clearly the difference between the Russian case and the German case. Um, but she is also going to believe that the Leninist modification of Marxism is a mistake. It's a mistake because you have to believe in the laws of history, they will play themselves out. But it's also a mistake because she believes that an elite will always turn conservative in the end. That real energy, real revolutionary energy comes from the proletariat. You have to trust the workers. You have to trust the workers, you have to let them come to consciousness. History will do its job. She finds Lenin centralism too close to Jacobinism, too close to those radical centralizers in the French Revolution who are responsible for the terror in 1793 and 1794. Um, she believes it too much separates the party leadership from the actual, from the actual workers it represents. The fact is, she says, that social democracy, here by which she means the communist movement, is not joined to the organization of the proletariat. It's not like something that has a relationship to the proletariat. It is itself the proletariat. The ultra-centralism, she writes, asked by Lenin is full of the sterile spirit of the overseer. It is not a positive and creative spirit. Lenin's concern is not so much to make the activity of the party more fruitful as to control the party, to narrow the movement rather than to develop it, to bind rather than unify it. 
She insists that history will do its job. The unconscious, she writes, comes before the conscious. The logic of the historic process comes before the subjective logic of the human beings who participate in the historical process. The tendency is for the directing organs of the Socialist Party to play a conservative role. So she's going to criticize the Leninist modification on two grounds, one of which is you have to respect the stages of history. You have to let history go through these stages. You know, and the second is that an elite will always turn conservative in the end. You know, and true revolutionary energy lies with the workers. Um, the next person I want to bring in is somebody of a younger generation. Um, that is Georg Lukács, who is probably the most important Marxist philosopher in, in, in Hungary of his generation. And he loves Rosa Luxemburg, but he's going to come out on Lenin's side. In an essay that's not, in fact, published until after the Bolshevik Revolution, History and Class Consciousness, which is a series of, enemy, of essays in which he says that the whole system of Marxism stands and falls with the principle that revolution is the product of a point of view in which the category of totality is dominant. Trade unionism has clearly, to Lukács, demonstrated that it fails to grasp totality. Sometimes you've just got to jump in. Um, moreover, he's convinced that it's the party who really understands what the workers are thinking perhaps before they do themselves. And Lukács says, in a word, opportunism mistakes the actual psychological state of consciousness of proletarians for the class consciousness of the proletariat. So there's a kind of distinction between the empirical, how they think they're thinking, you know, and what really ideally in some platonic sense they should be thinking. Um, and although he loves Rosa Luxemburg, he thinks she underplays the role of the party. Okay. The party for Lukács is the embodiment of class consciousness. It is the unity between theory and practice. We need that iron discipline to make the revolution work. I'm going to now jump you from 1903, when the party breaks up into the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks, to 1905 in the Tsarist Empire. People talk about the 1905 revolution. The 1905 revolution in the Tsarist Empire is less an actual revolution and more of a kind of series of strikes, peasant uprisings, workers' protests, demonstrations on be on the part of all sorts of groups that like run the whole spectrum from far right to far left. Workers, peasants, bourgeois intellectuals, people who want a little bit of reform, people who want a revolution. Like, there's, there's a sense of ferment, ferment. There's a sense of dissatisfaction. There's a sense of rebellion against Tsarist authority, but there's not a unified direction. It's not so well organized, but it demonstrates that something is happening. It's a in that sense, it's a little bit like 1848 in the Habsburg Empire that A.G.P. Taylor describes as the turning point at which history failed to turn. The 1905 revolution was a little bit like the turning point at which history failed to turn, and yet, and, and yet it was not nothing. You know, something was set in place. There was a massacre in January 1905 where the police in St. Petersburg under Tsar Nicholas II fired at a demonstration of workers, killing about 130 people, which at that time was a huge number. Um, that massacre le leads to 
radicalization. That massacre is called Bloody Sunday. The various kinds of protests are going to culminate in a general strike in October. Um, it's going to seem that revolutionary or quasi-revolutionary forces are victorious. Um, and Tsar Nicholas II you know, consents to the creation of, of a new Duma, which is a kind of parliamentary body. And essentially he agrees to the kind of reforms that would have turned um, the Tsarist autocracy into a kind of constitutional monarchy. Um, the sh very short version of the story, which I, I don't want to dwell on because I want to get you into the Bolshevik Revolution, is that he kind of goes back on those things a year later. Um, so, it, but, but the precedent was set. He says, okay, there can be, not, not, it, not that I'm leaving, not that I'm giving up power, but there can be some kind of legislative body, some kind of vague check, um, but then that basically gets undone a year later. Um, it was an incomplete revolution, but something was in the air. There's a sense of dissatisfaction. Okay, now I'm gonna jump you forward to 1914. Um, First World War, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand by Gavrilo Princip. Um, the Habsburg Empire declares war on Serbia. The Russian Empire comes in on the side of Serbia, their Slavic brothers. Um, the German Empire comes in on the side of the Habsburg Empire. And suddenly, you know, all of Europe is kind of blowing up in this war. The Bolshevik Revolution takes place in the midst of the First World War. And this is kind of difficult to, to kind of get through. Because imagine your country, your empire is fighting a war. And there's an, also a revolution within that country. Um, so now I'm going to take you to... Petersburg, which is now called Petrograd, the name of these cities gets changed various times for various reasons. It's later going to be Leningrad. Today it's Petersburg again. Don't let that confuse you. Um, St. Petersburg, for those of you who haven't been there, it's very far north. It's quite close to Finland. Um, that's significant for this story because we're, I'm taking you now to February 1917. This war has been going on since late summer of 1914. This is already an impoverished empire. It's been fighting a gruesome war with huge losses of both resources and human beings. It is winter. It's freezing. There are food shortages and it's very, very dark. Um, that's not irrelevant. For those of you who have been to Petersburg or anywhere north in the summer, you know there's something called White Nights, where it basically never gets dark because you're so far north. It's amazing. Um, but that means in the winter it's kind of dark all the time. It's dark and it's cold and people are starving. Um, and they're not even sure they believe in the Tsar anymore. There's a revolution then that's going to be called the February Revolution that happens when soldiers start to mutiny. They start to refuse to fight. Um, and at that point, on March 2nd, 1917, faced with mutiny, unable to keep order in, in what is then Petrograd, faced with food shortages and massive protests, Tsar Nicholas II abdicates. 
he gives up the throne. This is just unprecedented. And the, the Tsarist empire had just been going on with the Romanov dynasty for centuries. And now suddenly they're fighting a world war and the Tsar has just abdicated and nobody really knows who's in charge. Um, what happens after he abdicates is a situation that's a kind of attempt to put something vaguely more democratic in place, but also a lot of anarchy. Um, most things are taking place in Petrograd, which is not representative of the rest of the country. You know, by 1914, the urban working class in the Tsarist Empire is about three million people in, of a population of about 167. So tiny, tiny minority. Um, you get something called dual power, where there are two kind of institutions that crop up, one of which is a provisional government, you know, in Petrograd, which is, we would kind of describe it as more of a kind of bourgeois, liberal, centrist kind of forces. You know, and then there is the Petrograd Soviet, which is more of a kind of socialist, proletarian, ordinary soldiers, sailors, some workers. That's another kind of, that's another institution of power. And those two institutions are in a, in a kind of dual power arrangement are trying to work something out. Um, somebody named Alexander Kerensky, who is both a socialist and a provisional government mem member, is, kind of, is the liaison between those two bodies. The peasants initially seem to be enthusiastic. There's supposed to be general elections convened for a constituent assembly through universal ballot. That doesn't really happen. They can't really get their act together for probably overdetermined reasons to do that very quickly. The peasants start to protest. Um, they refuse to deliver grain to the cities. Um, Authorities in the cities then come and try to requisition the, the grain. The presents get upset um, and start protesting. There's more and more disenchantment. And you have something close to anarchy in the midst of this split power arrangement. Um, now, where is Lenin? Lenin's in Switzerland. Lenin's in Switzerland. He's writing a book. If you must be in Europe during a European war, the best place to be is in Switzerland. That said, Lenin doesn't want to be in Switzerland when he sees that a revolution has broken out in Petrograd. Lenin wants at all costs to get back to Petrograd, and he has clear ideas about what should happen. His ideas are, in particular, get out of this war immediately. This is a bourgeois war. You have bourgeois countries, or in this case, bourgeois empires, you know, who are fighting one another for imperialist-like control. Why should the workers be dying on behalf of the bourgeoisie? We should get out of the war. We should all get out of the war because in any case, any moment now, the workers all around the world are going to rise up and together overthrow the bourgeoisie. So why should they be killing one another for these bourgeois powers in the meantime? So he wants out of the war. He wants the Russian Empire immediately out of the war. He thinks the Petrograd Soviet, the more radical elements of the revolution, should not be cooperating with the provisional government at all. He says all land should be nationalized. There should be no more private property. And the Petrograd Soviet should get all the power. Um, the Germans listening to this say, wouldn't it be great if the Russian Empire stopped fighting us? 
They have an incentive, therefore, to get Lenin back to Petrograd so he can play a role. They smuggle Lenin in a sealed German train car with some of his Bolshevik comrades all the way through war-torn Europe to Petrograd. Lenin arrives there in April 1917. He arrives there and things are a mess. In June, there's a, a Congress, an all-Russian Congress of Soviets convened in Petrograd. And there, one of the Menshevik leaders says, listen, we've got a million parties here. We're doing the best we can, but you know, is there really in Russia any, any political party who has the wherewithal in these impossible conditions to say, give me power now, we will take control, we can handle it. And Lenin famously stands up and says, Yes, Takaya Party. <laughs> says, yes, there is such a party. It's the Bolsheviks, it's his party. The Bolsheviks are, as parties go in Russia at this time, very small, handful of people. Um, but Lenin is very confident. Um, there, a bunch of things happen, which since I'm running out of time, I won't go into the details of. There's an, an attempted coup by somebody named General Cornelio from the right. It fails. There's more anarchy. In the meantime, the Tsarist army is continuing to fight the Germans. People are continuing to die. Um, there's more and more Bolshevik power in both the Petrograd Soviets and, and the smaller Soviets elsewhere. Lenin is going to step in and claim that he simply found power lying in the streets and picked it up. And in conditions at which nobody could have possibly known what to do, he denounced compromise and insisted on radicalism at once. Slavoj Žižek, when maybe almost 20 years ago now, he published a collection of Lenin's writings from right at this time, from 1917, with a very long graphomaniac-type Slavoj Žižek introduction. And what Slavoj Žižek admires in Lenin is just is the chutzpah. It, it's the audacity to walk into a situation when no one knows what's going on and just take charge and say, okay, this is the moment. This is the moment we do it now. When the Bolsheviks took power in October 1917, they were a tiny minority. They represented a metaphysical proletariat. It was not a workers' revolution. There were not enough workers to have a workers' revolution. It was not a revolution of workers. It was a revolution on behalf of workers. And it wasn't even a revolution on behalf of actually existing workers. It was a, a revolution on behalf of the workers who would come into being as soon as we could kind of rush these stages of history along and get some industrialization going. So they literally represented a metaphysical proletariat. On the night of, uh, of November 6th to 7th, by the current calendar, um, the Bolsheviks took over the Winter Palace in, in Petrograd. Um, Lenin then goes on to make a separate peace in, with the Germans at Breslitovsk in 1918, which he believes is insignificant because he really believes that any moment now, an hour from now, a day from now, a week from now at most, all of the workers all around the world are going to rise up and overthrow their respective bourgeois governments. So any deal now he makes with the Germans is basically meaningless because there's about to be a worldwide workers' revolution. 
The, the historian Alex Rabinovich calls this the single biggest mistake of the 20th century. Lenin makes a wager on an international revolution that doesn't happen. Um, at this point, some of the Mensheviks, seeing what Lenin is doing, cross over to the other side, most famously Trotsky. Um, Trotsky, to, for the, from the point of view of the Mensheviks, it seemed like, aren't the Bolsheviks breaking the rules of Marxism? They're not waiting for history to play itself out. But when things move forward, Trotsky jumps in and he says to the rest of the Mensheviks who don't go along with it, he says, you are pitiful, isolated individuals. You are bankrupt. Your role is played out. Go where you belong from now on into the dustbin of history. It's going to be a kind of famous line, into the dustbin of history. Um, okay, I only have two minutes left, so I won't, um, I won't take you so far into what happens afterwards, but suffice it to say that the idea of worldwide work workers' revolution did not seem as crazy then as it does now. There was almost a successful communist revolution in Hungary, almost in Slovakia, and almost in Germany, where Rosa Luxemburg was playing a crucial role um, and would have continued to play a crucial role was she not kidnapped by the anti-communist forces um, and killed and her body thrown into the river in Berlin. In fact, if you go to Berlin, you can see there's a little plaque in the spot in the river and the park and the center of Berlin where you can see where um, Rosa Luxemburg and his comrade or comrades' bodies were thrown into the river. Um, what is going to follow with Lenin's creation of the Soviet Union is the largest, most far-reaching, most penetrating social engineering experiment ever to be performed on mankind. Um, we are in some ways still grappling with simply the, the enormity of the experiment. You know, it was an attempt not just to remake a government and not even just to remake a society, but actually to re-engineer human beings. Um, we're still grappling with the enormity of that. We're still grappling with the enormity of the catastrophe. We're still grappling with how too much faith in human perfectibility can take you right into the torture chambers. But I want to leave you, not with that as your last thought, but with a thought about historical contingency. It really is a role, uh, it's a historical episode that illuminates what is sometimes the extraordinary role of individuals. And I want you to think back now to February 1917, all of this upheaval in freezing cold, dark, starving Petrograd. Lenin in Switzerland writing a book. He decides to try to get back. The Germans agree to smuggle him in that sealed German train car because they want to get rid of the Tsarist Empire's fighting them. I mean, it's bad enough they're fighting on two fronts. And I want you to think about this. Anything happens to that sealed German train car, and Lenin does not get to Petrograd in April 1917, and I think there's arguably no Bolshevik revolution in the whole 20th century as we know it. Doesn't happen. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll see you on Wednesday. <laughs>